Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Uh, my book of the summer, his name is Raghun Rajan. If you do not know him, he is a nodding acquaintance uh, with India as their former RBI governor, but also a dynamo at the University of Chicago. And I can't say enough about the third pillar. It's March, and it's already my book of the summer. Raghun, congratulations on the third pillar. And throughout your book on community is a discussion of education seamlessly throughout 400 pages. Let me cut to the chase. Your Chicago is so elite, these parents out on the West Coast weren't even trying to get their kids into Professor Rajan's Chicago. They were looking at other lower schools like that one in Cambridge in Massachusetts as well. Rago, just simply your thoughts on the desperation to buy academics in America. Well, this is very worrisome, right? Because uh, on the one hand, we already have a skewing of opportunities. You have to go to the elite schools to get those elite jobs, and, and then you get, uh, you know, uh, zillions. But for most of us uh, out there, it's very hard to even take the first step. And then you read that it's not just about legacies, it's not just about preparation schools which help you prepare your applications, but it's about buying your way in illegally through corruption. That, that, that's really a blow to the system, and we need to clean this up as quickly as possible. You had make a, sure you, it's not happening. You, professor, you had a most interesting childhood in India. Well, I won't go into it all, but like many others, you traveled around the world with your father in diplomacy and enforcement for India as well. And you were acutely aware of the path for you through university in India and then on to your acclaimed world excellence. Is the place those students took, is it a place from someone of the middle class, or is it a place of someone who just went below that level of whatever school and they just eked out not going to that fancy school? Well, I, I think it is a concern that uh, so many people don't get a chance uh, to really get into these good schools. First, uh, you need a level of ambition in some of these schools outside the big cities, which tells you really the way to uh, progress is to go to these, high, uh, these uh, Ivy League schools and from there get those wonderful jobs. Many students don't even have that ambition because they don't have access to good college counselors who tell them that's out there waiting for you. There are lots of scholarships. Please do apply. And even if they, they do hear that, the next step of doing the college tests, of writing the good applications, uh, of getting past those hurdles is very difficult. So when you hear that there are separate tracks here, uh, I think it creates a whole uh, lot of new anxiety over and above what we already have. Professor, does, does this feed populism? Do these kind of scandals, the idea that actually the elite and the rich can get whatever they want, will it lead to people voting to more extreme parties? Of course, because I think the sense that the system is skewed, even before you add on corruption to it, is already there. That uh, the elite look after themselves. I call it the, uh, we, we have a meritocracy, but it's a hereditary meritocracy 
only the children of the successful get a chance at being successful because of the extreme importance of a really good education. So given that, when you add on to that corruption, and after all, what is populism? It's ultimately the corruption of the elite. They're not working for us, they're working for themselves. It leads to a significant amount of distrust in the system. So uh, my sense is this is yeah. one of those scandals which, is, uh, which has to be cleaned up very, very quickly. Uh, Professor, again, congratulations on your book, which is fantastic, which is both Tom and I's uh, book of the year. When you look actually at central banks, and you said this in the past, that you don't believe central banks should do any more QE. If there was a downturn around the corner, what do you think they should do instead? Well, uh, certainly the, uh, the U.S. central bank, the Fed, and, uh, and, and China still have some room to cut interest rates. Uh, uh, I think part of the normalization was, in a sense, to create some of that buffer. Of course, the problem with uh, both the ECB and the Bank of Japan is they're already into negative interest rates. As far as QE goes, they've pretty much done what they could, uh, and whatever modest right. effect it has had <clears throat> is pretty much out there. There's very little more ammunition in the central bank tank. And so my guess is we have to look for other instruments in those countries. I mean, Professor, this is extraordinary. If you look at a college like Carleton College in Minnesota, this is an acclaimed liberal arts institution of the Midwest, just like you're in Chicago. Brian Levitt joins us in the early morning down here at Oppenheimer, senior investment strategist. Brian, let's start there with Treasuries. Yields near 2019 lows. What's driving things? What's driving the lower rates is just the slowdown in global economic activity. Um, you know, this was sort of we preordained. We sort of expected this. I mean, you had a lot of stimulus last year, drove rates to 325, Fed raised rates a couple of times, and that starts to slow down economic activity. You see rates back down. We've been in the low for long camp for a while now. We believe interest rates are going to remain low for a very long period of time. That's what happens in a world where we're just growth starved. So, what is, so, so does equities dovetail into low rates or does it dovetail into slow GDP, which means lousy earnings? So earnings are likely to be good enough. Um, growth is likely to be good enough to support corporate earnings, but we're still in an environment where rates are so low that stocks are very cheap to bonds. And I expect that with modest er earnings growth, <clears throat> some multiple expansion, yeah. equity markets should continue to do good. This is really important, folks. Brian, you and I have done this before. Let's walk through it again. When a pro says stocks are cheap to bonds, what does that mean on dividend versus yield on P.E. multiple. I mean, take that right back to Lewis Rukeyser 101. Well, I think an easy way to do it is to just flip the price-earnings ratio over and look at the earnings so yield. So if of Apple equities. has a price-to-earnings ratio of 10, using a round number, right. 10 divided by 1, right. flip it, 1 divided by 10. Compared to a... Two and a, so one divided by 10 compared to a 2.5% yeah. treasury rate, and the, you're going you're yeah. to look pretty attractive. So the S&P earnings yield is probably close to around 5% compared to 2, 6, 2, right. 7 on treasuries. Was, was that too much math for No, I thought that was, that was a great okay, start for, for our coverage down here <laughs> at Oppenheimer. You, you do the math. I'm going to eat the toast. Hey, Brian, let's uh, let Tom enjoy his food. I right. think there's something that frustrates a lot of people on Wall Street. It's when people turn around and say, the bond market's telling me something. Is there a sinister message in the bond market the equity market doesn't know about? Can we just clear that up right now? Well, the bond market is telling you that we're going back to an environment of very modest growth, 
but modest inflation. And we see that in the inflation numbers. And paradoxically, that's actually in a better environment for equities. Jonathan, if you remember last year, very good growth, but what we would call bad policy. Yep. Federal Reserve raising interest rates, the, the um, administration fighting a trade war. This year, what the market is focused on is slower growth, but better policy. The Federal Reserve has backed off. We're hoping to get some clarity on trade, and the market is enthused by that. This is a theme for Oppenheimer coming into 2019. I've heard it from you. I've heard it from Krishna multiple times, and I've heard it now for several months. What I haven't seen yet is the better policy, for the markets at least, work for the economy. I haven't seen the bottoming out, a bottoming out process come through in China in a clear way right. not yet. Do you see it? Well, you're starting to see stabilization in Chinese growth. So you're starting to see some credit growth. You have a purchasing manager's index that's hovering around 49 and a half. So we're getting closer to that expansion territory, perhaps a recent turn in industrial production. So it looks like we're getting to stabilization in Chinese growth back right. to a trend level. But remember, policy moves take some time to work through the economy. So we would expect to see that second half. This is why, quite frankly, the U.S. Right. is slowing. We raise rates, and it's working its way through the system. When John trades, it's like a three-day trade is a long-term <laughs> trade. And I would suggest That's here long. at Oppenheimer Funds, you know, a long-term trade is like five years or even 10 years. In two months, we're up 11.4% S&P 500. How do you, Krishna, and the rest of your team, how do you answer the question, wait a minute, I'm up double-digit, go to cash? Well, look, first of all, we had a very difficult fall and winter. So we've been recovering ground from what was a pretty nasty correction. So you're going to take it back six months year. to do your compare and contrast. Well, right. And the reality is, I mean, investors can try and trade. They can try to move uh, into cash, but they've got to make multiple decisions right. They've got to know when to get into cash. They've got to know when to get out of yeah. cash. The reality is I believe we're in a secular bull market. I've, I've been told you get three secular bull markets in your life. The first one, I was too young. 1982 to 99. Oh, I was too. <laughs> the next one, I'm likely to be. What are you looking I'm at? I'm just saying, we've got a live audience yeah. here, and everyone's faces just were like, what is he talking about? You missed that sort one? Of like, it's sort of like Imus, you know? I mean, it's like, it's a hotel full of people here right now. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's just great. You love an this audience. I'm happy to have it. Brian yeah. Carrier. Does that make me Bernard? <clears throat> um, yes, it so, does. So anyway, <laughs> um, this is the one, this is the middle secular bull market in my life, at least as I view it. And, you know, secular bull markets are ultimately going to end with either extreme excess in the system, valuations that are incredibly excessive, or a policy mistake. And none of those well, seem apparent. Let's talk about your regional bias right now. What would it be? Well, I would favor, in the United States, I would favor true growth Excuse assets. Excuse me, That's I'm, gonna flavor, continue. I'm favoring Cleveland this morning. Oh, yeah. That's well, our regional can bias. We, can we wait? Can we wait to <laughs> no, do that No, that's my regional bias. Just, just, How do they just, trade him to let's, Cleveland? Let's just wait. We've got a bit of time later to do this. Can I just you, say that my 11-year-old daughter, Carly, All right, we go in there. She's, okay, she's, we go in there. We go in there. Okay, we've got three minutes to go there. Let's do this. Can we explain so, that Mr. – what's his name? Beckham? Beckham, Beckham Jr. Beckham Jr. Not the soccer player, football. I understand. <laughs> Move from Giants to Browns. Everyone is shocked. Continue, right. Mr. Levin. My daughter, Levin. devastated, but Jabril Peppers, Michigan guy, coming to New York. So is she we'll, going to change her Giants tattoo to a Browns tattoo? She did ask for a, a – Beckham Brown's jersey so for what her do, birthday. What do the Giants get in return? Educated Brit here. What, what, what do they, <laughs> they get for they this? They get Mr. Manning in return. <laughs> so they get the number 17 pick in this draft, the number 95 Very pick in good. this draft, and Jabril Peppers, the safety who came out of Michigan, Patterson Catholic High School. Yeah, but it's interesting. And is it real? Would you suggest, and folks, this really goes to all the sports, including John. We'll talk about, uh, is it Juventus? Juventus? Juventus. Juventus. We'll talk about their win yesterday. But, Brian, it goes to the management trying to calm a locker room, and they think they're going to do that by moving this gifted wide receiver out, right? 
Well, I suspect that's that's what they're thinking. Um, it's also that's a team like that they moved me and John down yeah. here to <laughs> to calm the surveillance locker room. I suppose it's a team that thinks they need to rebuild. Yeah. And so that's this are is you, a step. Are you talking about Bloomberg surveillance? I'm talking no, no, no. Talking about the Giants. So I was just, <laughs> just trying to work that out. Can we talk about a real sport? Do you want? To, Can what? we talk about Juventus? A real sport. Okay. Cristiano Ronaldo needs to score three goals. That's exactly what he does. Juventus wins. They can't go stunning, forward without stun- scoring three they goals. They need to in score three goals and win three nil. Ronaldo scores all three. Stunning comeback over in Turin in Italy. The stock this morning, Juventus up sixteen percent. Just off that up win. Up 16% just off that win. And the market cap move off the back of it, the equivalent of two times what the club paid for him. Two times what the club paid for him. We're up about 240 million euros mm-hmm. in market cap on the day. Does Manchester City have the same dynamics with the year they're having? So Manchester City and Juventus, I think, are probably the favourites for the, for the tournament now alongside mm-hmm. Barcelona. Like the Cleveland Browns? Well, can I tell you my regional view now? Can you Please, tell us yeah. your regional so, view in 30 so seconds? 30 <laughs> seconds. We were very favorable on the emerging markets. Last year was well, U.S. above trend, China below, China stabilizing, U.S. slowing, policy accommodative around the world. That should be supportive okay, for non-dollar assets. Back. This is really important. We'll come back and talk about the international expertise of Oppenheimer Funds and Brian Levitt's uh, view on emerging markets as well. It is a joy to be at Oppenheimer Funds with their expertise uh, in international investment. Of course, those of us of a certain vintage remember Oppenheimer Funds from a few years ago with definitive equity and particularly growth equity at work as well in hosting us today. Krishna Mamani, uh, head of the shop here. Wonderful to have you here. And you get surveillance yeoman's duty today. We were going to give that to Francine Lacroix, freezing on the green at Westminster. I think for our audience... We sort of perceive New York to Istanbul, which is not quite as far as New York to Buenos Aires. You just flew in from Argentina, and you had a brilliant insight, Christian, as always. They're bankrupt, pesos at 42, and the hotels are packed. How can that be? Well, so I, I think that's very interesting. That is, uh, they have a crisis, and it was a crisis created by the Macri government by depending too much to fund the fiscal deficit from external sources. Beyond that, I I think uh, there is the drawdown in the economy is relatively modest. If Macri can win the uh, uh, the election, and there's decent chance for that despite the economic debacle, he can implement lots of structural changes. The most interesting thing that I observed there is Argentina uses Venezuela more than anybody else. I, I think that is one of the what reasons. What do you mean uses? Mean their resources? No. What, what they're saying is, well, if Christina comes back, uh, Kirchner's come back, right, right. Uh, then we will be another Venezuela. We'll and export Look Venezuela. at Venezuela. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a that is a good election platform. Bottom line is, uh, you know, the country is going right. through an adjustment. They are in a sort of a recession, but I I don't think the recession is as deep as people suspect. Is there opportunity there for traditional investors, or is it the prevalence of fancy alternative fund people that know more than I do? No, I I think the companies are dirt cheap. If you met an agri chem company. And they generate almost $90 million in free cash flow in dollar terms because they export, so it's dollars, trading at $700, $770 million in market cap. 
that's a cash on cash yield which is significantly significantly cheaper than anywhere else in the world so how do you think about latin america in general i mean do you really need to break it down country by country uh company by company or do you have a macro view of latin america that you need to be longer or underexposed i i, I think the the thing in uh, latin america is important but the larger context is emerging markets Valuations in emerging markets, as Argentina and other places show, valuations in emerging markets are very cheap relative to the developed world, especially the U.S. And that's the primary reason why we want to be in in emerging markets. And I, as as uh, the company that I was talking about, it's really not about Argentina as much as it is about a dollar exporter in Argentina who has significant cost advantages. So emerging market investing for us has always been about companies rather than geographies or countries. How about now, so in the context of your emerging market thesis, as you just stated, how concerned are you about just slowing global economies? I'm thinking specifically China, uh, and then also you know Europe as well. Um, how is that impacting kind of your view of emerging markets? Well, so global economy is slowing down for sure. Uh, I mean, U.S. is slowing down. China will slow down. Europe has definitely slowed down. Having said that, the, the slowdown is not catastrophic. So China is not going to go to 4%. It's going to be uh, still be higher than 6%. And Europe hopefully stabilizes around, uh, you know, uh, for the whole year yeah. around 1%. U.S. probably 2%. So the global economy is slowing down, but it is not slowing down right. catastrophically. Policy, on the other hand, is going to be meaningfully more supportive. Right. Uh, in 2019 than it had it was in 2018. And that's what gets the markets right. higher. Very quickly, my idea of international investment used to be to buy a case of Molson Gold Nail <laughs> out of Canada. It's changed a little bit, Christian, to say the least. Do you just go into EM now and let you guys allocate, or do you have to be supple and go in and out so you miss 2018 and try to get 2019? Well, so I, I think if you are a long-term investor and you're looking for growth in your portfolio for the next two or three decades, which is a lot of people need, the real growth in the world is only going to come from emerging markets. You got to own and stay with it. You just have to own and you know you'll have the five-year period that we have had over the last five right. years. It's been uh, very subpar, but that's not the context. The context is you want to okay. be in this market for the long-term growth. Well, we're going to come back. He's got so many frequent flyer miles on the surveillance <laughs> uh, credit card that we're going to uh, bring Christian Mamani back. Just in, flew in from Buenos Aires. BOAC that doesn't work no, as that a doesn't song work. doesn't they failed <laughs> at that You know, House Democrats, uh, now they're you know, obviously back in control of the House and they're actually taking another stab at legislation uh, protecting young uh, undocumented immigrants while at the same time expanding those protections to immigrants that are covered uh, by other programs. To help us kind of break down uh, this story, we're joined by Laura Francis, uh, Laura's Bloomberg Law Senior Legal Editor. Uh, Laura, thanks so much for joining us. Um, what is the status of this latest iteration of immigration legislation? So it was just introduced yesterday. There was a lot of fanfare by the Democrats. So we'll have to see kind of where it's going to go from here. I would imagine that with the Democrats in control of the House, they're really going to make a push to get this bill through committee and onto the House floor. Is there any Republican support either in the House or the Senate for this? 
There has not been vocalized Republican support. I think there are some Republicans who are willing to work with the Democrats to expand this bill and kind of add some provisions that maybe include border security, interior yeah. enforcement, that kind of thing. They're not willing to throw it out, but I don't think they want to see it uh, passed in its current form. But, but okay, I, I get that, but essentially anything the House proposes is dead on arrival, right? I mean, this is the definition of gridlock. It, it can be, especially with immigration. Any immigration bill introduced by either party and either side of Congress, right. it faces an uphill battle. So how do you handle that every day? Do you medicate every morning before you go into the land of gridlock? Uh, I, I can't speak for members of Congress. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's a perpetual challenge with any immigration legislation. Um, because immigration bills have not moved in Congress in so many years, anything that gets introduced is mired in all these complicated factors. Is the bill going to be too small? Is the bill going to be too big? And it kind of puts everyone at a standstill until something finally kind of breaks that political logjam. Yeah. So, so Laura, is, is there some middle road here where we could, uh, where the Congress could bring in some, you know, some money, uh, some language about border security, about a wall or just border security broadly defined to help push this legislation through? Is there any middle ground there? I think there could be this time around. In past Congresses, Republicans have insisted on we need enforcement first before we provide any kind of legalization to undocumented immigrants. This time, they they changed their tune a little bit where they're saying we still need that enforcement, but we are willing to attach it to legalization. So I think that yeah. may be a ground for them to work together on not this exact bill, but maybe using this as a jumping right. point to something more comprehensive. To a grizzled pro like you, when you see a new number, $8.6 kajillion, to build another X feet of wall, translate that for the jaded on Capitol Hill. What does that actually mean? So I, I, what, what you're seeing is, is the president's budget proposal, and yeah. that's really just kind of his wish list for what he wants to see happen. It's very rare that Congress gives him anything that, close to what he's asking for, and especially with the wall, which has already been the subject of so much contention, yeah. um, it's, it's highly unlikely that that's actually going to pass through Congress. Laura Francis, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate the budget wish list conversation in Washington. Sweeney and uh, Time Keen with Oppenheimer Funds. We do this once a year, and it is spectacular, and we thank them uh, for their hospitality and uh, uh, good food, uh, to say the least. I'm, I'm a little shaky right now, Paul, after uh, the avocado toast, I mean, after the second tray of it. I think this is the interview of the day. Forget I love about this. all yeah. this investment stuff. Christina Boris uh, with us, head of client research at Oppenheimer Funds, which means know your client which is actually go out and talk to people about their fears. Now, we could rip up the script and spend the entire 
uh, interview talking about how to get into college, but that'll be a theme <laughs> maybe for another time yeah. uh, with you. I'm sure people walk in and go, I've got to get my kid into Slippery Rock. What do I do? But forget about that. What's the biggest fear right now of high net worth people? A fear. Um, I would say just uncertainty about the current political environment. That's something we actually asked about last year in our Politics survey. has come in yes. much more. Yes. What about the idea of, I've got? you mean the math says I've got to put this amount of money on? Because, I mean, Paul's too young to remember this, but there's the idea of if I don't make 20%, I can't get it forward. And the hurdle rates come down on return over the years. Is there a panic among the people you interview and cite, a true panic that, that we're in an area where we've got to put aside a lot more money than we ever thought we had to. Well, not in terms of the latest survey results, which we just wrapped up last month. Um, what we found is that high net worth investors are really focused on the long term, even in the wake of the recent market volatility in the back half of 2018. Many investors said they actually didn't do anything. They didn't make any changes to their investment portfolios. They st they kept yeah. calm and carried on. That seems to be the That's mantra. Unlike That's unusual. Yeah. 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 Unlike me, I was whipping a portfolio around <laughs> trying to catch the last uh, thing. Right. So, you know, it's it's interesting. What we've heard from uh, um, a lot of asset managers is that their clients are, you know, asking more about ESG and which is environmental mm -hmm. sustainability and governance, I yes. guess. And those are becoming more important issues. Yes. Is that what you find in your survey work as well? Yes, absolutely. We do ask that in the survey, and we do see that ESG investing is on the rise with high net worth investors. Um, as of this latest survey, almost of those who are invested in sustainables and ESG, um, almost half of their portfolio, 47%, is made up of those types of investments. And what we're also seeing is that there's an opportunity for advisors to really help their clients design their portfolios around the causes that are near right. and dear to okay, them. Okay, fine. I mean, I, I, I get the immediacy of the causes in yeah. ESG. What percentage of stocks are precluded from ESG. If I if I walk in and I say, I want to do ESG with Oppenheimer Funds or any other major institutional house, what percent of the market am I walking away from by doing ESG? Oh, I'm not really an expert on that. I'm not sure. You can pretend but... to be. It's <laughs> we, we, we do it all You're the time. Lot, we do it all the time. If you don't know the answer, just bluff your way through. It'll be great. <laughs> Okay, you don't you don't know. Okay, the the answer is Paul. I'm going to take a reach well, here. <laughs> Philip Morris isn't on the list. Uh, yeah, exactly, okay, exactly. Right, I right. have a good story about that. Anyway, so but when I go in, when I think about a financial advisor, you know, and I'm, I'm selecting a financial advisor, at the end of the day, all I really care about is performance. Um, is that changing? Not really for the high net worth investor. We okay. ask that. So we ask, you know, when you're looking to work with an advisor, what are the top qualities that you're seeking? And by far and away, um, good absolute performance, absolute performance, and uh, have, working with an advisor who really understands their long-term goals, meaning like what they ultimately want to achieve with their wealth and their money are the top two things that investors are looking for. And that hasn't changed year over year. What, what is, give us an example of ESG investment. I mean, I think of like somebody comes in and says, I don't want any mm -hmm. dairy products. I only want almond milk. Let's go. <laughs> Right. I mean, that's not what it is, right? Right, right. So we, in the survey, you know, we ask, first of all, are you um, investing in ESG type investments? And if they say yes, then we give them a whole list of different categories like 
clean energy, clean technology, mm-hmm. gender equity, um, and, and you know, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and we ask them to select which categories, subcategories they're invested in, and we also ask them which ones they're interested in, so that we can kind of get a read on maybe future investment in different areas. It's interesting, ESG. You know, it just you know, on the Bloomberg terminal, there's more and more ESG data being put on the Bloomberg terminal, more and more because our Bloomberg customers are asking for it. They're, de- yes. they're, they're demanding it. So it's kind of reflective of what you're seeing. Uh, is there a sense of how ESG, if I'm, I don't know if I'm, do I go in and say I'm overweight ESG or if I just want a representative percentage of my portfolio in ESG type investments, how's the performance of those types of investments? You get, what's the Oppenheimer data show? Um, well, it, the ETF that we, the ESG mm-hmm. ETF that we have, um, the way we look at it is we want to invest in companies that have exceptional and um, environmental, social, and governance standards. Um, and our ETF fund actually um, invests in companies that have superior scores mm-hmm. as described or um, defined by Sustainalytics. So that's one way that we look at it. Do you also deal with, I would guess, Tom, you get to these high net worth families and there's personal issues. I mean, yes. do advisors have to deal with all of that stuff when, in addition to no. just putting up good performance? Yes. Well, we do ask about money-related conflicts in the family, just trying to understand, like, what are the biggest conflicts that families um, are dealing with around money and what do advisors so see like, as well? So, like, a high net worth question would be, do I need the third lacrosse stick? That came up, that came up well, last night. Is that, like, part yes. of the survey? Well, what we found this year is that discretionary spending has bubbled up to the top. Oh, it is really? the top oh, money-related conflict with Vulmer, blow the break. This is too important. <laughs> so how do you respond to the, the, the afterthought that says, I need a third lacrosse stick. What do you say at Oppenheimer? Well, I mean, it's difficult. I guess it just depends on how, um, you know, how the the family is feeling, you know, especially with, you know, if you're seeing losses in your investment portfolio and you're concerned about the economy, maybe, you know, I think investors might be thinking about pulling back a little bit on spending. I tried that tech last night. It's very difficult. You know, Lax.com was laughing at me as I bought the next brine. I think it was under, what's it called from Baltimore? Under Armour. Under Armour. I bought an Under Armour lacrosse stick in yellow. There you go. Yellow was the key thing. And you probably, did you buy it on Amazon and have it delivered within an hour? No, we had to go to a specialist lacrosse place so they could kill me on the shipping. (laughs) Okay, that's the kind of thing you do. This has been wonderful. Christina Boris, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With really important research. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.